da 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 Hi, I'm Nikki Jacobs. And I'm Nathan Inzarello. Welcome to Theatre Couch Podcast. We're two actors, married to each other, who talk about theatre so much we thought you'd want to hear about it. Every episode will dare to deconstruct a play, extract its larger meanings, and find some laughs along the way. This is episode 10, our season finale episode. And today's play is Act 1, written by James Lapine. So grab a beverage, kick off your shoes, and join us as we dive headfirst into the world of Act One. Direct from our living room, comfortably seated on the theater couch. Woo, woo! Our 10th episode, our season finale episode. Hey, everybody, welcome! Hello, everyone, I'm here too. I'm really excited that we've made it to episode 10, and I'm thrilled that all of you have been there with us all the way. So, how are you feeling today? (laughs) Oh, I feel terrible. I can tell. Yeah, yeah. This is a great one to end on. This one hits home, and it touches on a lot of things we've talked about for the whole season. In what way, sir? Well, a huge part of it is about theater and the writing process and creativity and being in love with theater. I know that the two of us have each written things individually and together. We've written performance pieces. Why don't you talk a little bit about your experience with that? Because I just think it's so apropos for what we're talking about today. Well, I first started writing as a kid. What really comes to mind is that my cousins and I were always doing little plays for our family, and I remember there was like an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents that we wanted to perform for our family, so I said, oh, hey, I'll do that. I didn't realize I was adapting. I didn't realize that that... (laughs) You didn't know what it was called. Yeah, that that was actually the type of writing I was doing. But I sat down and basically from memory of the episode just wrote my own dialogue for it. Later on, I ended up writing a couple one-person shows that I performed. And then when I came out to L.A., there was something called the 24-Hour Plays. You would get about six to seven hours to write a play off the top of your head based on the actors that they gave you and anything that came to your mind from talking to them and being around them. And then I had to direct those actors in the play. This all took place within a 24-hour period. So I'm glad you bring up this story because you're talking about doing something, yeah, in 24 hours, not a lot of time for rewrites. Well, maybe just a few when you put it in the actor's hands and they would be allowed to have suggestions of where it might go, but I had the final say. Mm -hmm. But that's normally not how it works. That's one of the reasons why I love this play is because it lets people in on Guys, playwrights don't sit down and crack out a play in three days and then, bam, it's a hit from the very beginning. It takes sometimes years to develop something, at least weeks and months and workshops and all of this effort made to hone it and refine it. And sometimes entire plot points are changed and scenes are added and taken away. But I will say that sometimes writers overthink. Mm. 
And I suppose if you were to combine improv with writing, that's what the 24-hour plays are like. You really have to go off of your gut instinct and just keep following that instinct and trusting that it's going to lead to something fruitful. Well, just getting it out of your head, just getting it onto the page is a huge step in the creative process. So tell me about you, Nathan, and your uh, relationship to writing. Because I know you wrote a one-person show you've told me about in a class that you took. Yeah, I took a class at the Howard Fine Acting Studio. Shout out to Howard Fine. Karen Ludwig was the teacher. And the first part of the class, the first few weeks, was basically getting writing prompts and all of us coming back in with a performance piece. And then once we had all done that, we all had about five, six performance pieces to choose from, and we picked one and developed it for eventual performance. The end result was about 15, 20 minutes long. They weren't full-on two-hour, hour-and-a-half, one-person shows, but... There were enough for a pretty good size lengthwise showcase. Yeah. But it was a process that you went up every week and said, well, here's what I changed about the piece. And you had the benefit of having an audience there, not only to hear if the laughs were there or the responses were there that you wanted, but to get actual feedback from other writers, other people writing one-person shows. So... I thought that was very valuable. At the time, I also saw a lot of one-person shows to kind of get in the mind frame of doing that. I haven't written, I don't think, nearly as much as you have in my adulthood, but that was my one big insight into this writing process and how much time, effort, blood, sweat, and tears that it takes to get something that is presentable on stage. Yeah. As far as our play today, Act 1... I read this play and it made me value the importance of the writer in the Mm -hmm. theater process more than ever because it has to start there. You know, unless you are doing improv, you have to have a writer. Somebody has to spearhead it. And that is not easy. I don't think people who have not sat down and finished a piece of writing, whether it's theater or a book or a magazine article or whatever, I don't think that they truly understand the amount of commitment that is involved in seeing that thing to the end Mm -hmm. and how you have to be willing to make mistakes. You have to be willing to build on mistakes. Because I think a lot of people start out and they're like, oh, this is terrible. Let me start over. Mm -hmm. Which is fine. But you can't keep doing that. You'll get nowhere. Yeah, don't want to judge anyone's writing process. But starting over from scratch every single time ends up with a never finished project. Yeah. And I have done that. There's a play I'm working on right now. I've worked on it for years whenever I had the time to do it in between acting work. And there were times that I looked at it and I'm like, ugh, this isn't working. You know, I'd written several pages. I'm going to start fresh. I didn't start completely fresh. I still worked from the same main idea that I had originally. But at this point, I have very different characters carrying (laughs) out that idea and a very different start. And sometimes that's okay, but I do realize that it would have been helpful sometimes to just trust what I was doing. I don't always have that happen when I write. And maybe that's why I was good at the 24-hour plays 
because I didn't have time to overthink. Yeah, you weren't allowed to judge. Yeah. You I, just I, had to spit it out. Yeah, I was flying by the seat of my pants, which is an area where I'm comfortable. But without further ado, let's get into the summary yes. of Act One. Yes, okay. So Act One by James Lapine, which takes place between 1920 to 1930, is based on Moss Hart's autobiography of the same name and details the origins of the life and career of this celebrated playwright, famed for his playwriting partnership with George S. Kaufman. The play opens with a play which is attended by Moss's beloved Aunt Kate, an unapologetically outspoken and erratic woman who fosters Moss's love of the theater, one he claims began at age 11 when he saw his first play. Moss lives with his mother, father, younger brother, and for a time, his Aunt Kate, in a tenement in the Bronx. Financial concerns loom over his family as they take in boarders and scrimp for every penny to pay the bills. Moss's father does not permit him to finish school. Instead, Moss works in a fur warehouse to contribute to the family income. A lucky coincidence affords him the chance to leave the fur warehouse and work as an office boy for theater producer Augustus Patu. There, he befriends fellow office boys Eddie and Irving, loyal pals who proudly anoint their trio, the Confederation of Office Boys. Moss's job of reading plays for Mr. Patu results in Moss wading through many he considers boring. Hence, he secretly writes one of his own to submit to Mr. Patu. Moss's play makes its way to Buffalo, but is stopped short by a lukewarm audience response. A brief stint for Moss as an actor follows, but this is intercepted by Eddie and Irving's encouragement for Moss to return to his true calling, writing plays. Through a string of helpful connections set in motion by Eddie, Moss is paired with star playwright George S. Kaufman to revise Moss's latest comedy, Once in a Lifetime, into a funnier Broadway smash hit. As the two plunge into relentless and repeated reworking of its comic timing and plot design, they discover their work relationship and lives undergoing rewrites of their own. For Moss, his dreams of creating great theater become forever intertwined with hard work, and the courage to look beyond his Bronx tenement. Mm-hmm. I'd like to point out that James Lapine not only wrote the adaptation of this book, he directed the first production. I did not know that. Yeah. And this autobiography was, as I've read, very near and dear to his heart. Like, it very much inspired him. It adds to the reading list. Let's read this biography, and let's read Once in a Lifetime. Well, you told me last night that Moss Hart's autobiography, Act One, that this is based on, is considered one of the greatest books about show business. Is that what you told me? That's what I saw, yeah. It's highly regarded. And Lapine has done an amazing job. When you take an autobiography, when that's your source material, just to telescope it down into play format, the play has a lot of scenes that are... I'll say a page and a half, two pages. They're very quick, but it does a great job of like, well, here's this moment in Moss Hart's life, and we're going to boil it down to this one scene, and it doesn't feel rushed somehow. No, you don't feel shortchanged at all. I was, you put it into words, but that was what (laughs) I was feeling when I was going through it. I would be reading a scene and, oh, okay, it's done, but hey, I know exactly what that scene was about. 
I know what impact it was supposed to have mm-hmm. because I feel it. I was really, really impressed with his ability to capture what I assume is the essence of that autobiography. Yeah, the scenes really roll into one another. It's one of those plays where the end of one scene becomes the beginning of the next scene. Yeah. Uh, You know, you can imagine actors with a moving scene change. I think the first production was done on a turntable. (gasps) I love those. So that the set was rotating and... I'm nerding out over theater craft. Well, it's a testament to this man's writing ability. Mm-hmm. When you talk about those scenes rolling into each other, it's great comedy. He wasn't trying to replicate what Moss Hart and George S. Kaufman did yeah, not in their the plays mm-hmm. or what Moss Hart did alone as a writer. He just simply found the comedy and the momentum of Moss Hart's life. Mm. Speaking of which, let me elaborate yes, on some go, of this. Now we have our history. Some of this is going to feel, I think, very redundant because the play is based on the book. So most of the history is about Moss Hart's life. And then I'm going to talk about the playwright. You'll find that there are some interesting similarities between James Lapine and Moss Hart. So most of the 51 speaking roles in this play portray actual people from Moss Hart's life, since the play is based on the memoir, which was released in 1959. Moss Hart was an American playwright, librettist, and theater director. He was born in 1904 in New York City, and he grew up in relative poverty with his family in the Bronx and Brooklyn. His mother, Lillian, and father, Barnett, were English-born Jewish immigrants. And it's true that the real Aunt Kate was a strong influence on his life, and it was she who introduced him to theater. Hart worked several years as a director of amateur theater as well as entertainment director at summer resorts before he finally had his first Broadway hit with Once in a Lifetime in 1930. Once in a Lifetime is a farce about the transition to talking pictures in Hollywood. While Hart had written the original draft of the play himself in 1929, famed producer Sam Harris arranged for Broadway veteran George S. Kaufman to work with him on the long series of rewrites the play required. The original Broadway production, directed by Kaufman, opened at the Music Box Theater on September 24, 1930, and ran for 406 performances. Kaufman, again we know from the play, also performed in the play's original Broadway cast in the role of a frustrated playwright hired by Hollywood. During the next decade, Kaufman and Hart co-wrote a string of successful plays, including You Can't Take It With You and The Man Who Came to Dinner. Though Kaufman wrote with others, Hart is generally considered to be his most important collaborator. Hmm. Throughout the 1930s, Hart worked on several musicals and reviews alongside such theater luminaries as Irving Berlin, Cole Porter, Richard Rogers, Kurt Weill, and Ira Gershwin. I haven't heard of any of them. No, not at all. However... He became best known during this period as a director. He also wrote a few screenplays, including Gentleman's Agreement and A Star is Born. Oh my goodness, he wrote Gentleman's Agreement? Yeah, and the original uh, Star is Born with Judy Garland. Yeah, oh, that's, oh, wow. In 1972, 11 years after his death in 1961... Moss Hart was inducted into the American Theater Hall of Fame as part of the organization's first induction class. Wow. So I'm going to jump straight to a little biography of James Lapine. Oh, we don't care about him. Not after all that about Moss Hart. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I want to hear everything. Like I said, the similarities are pretty apparent. 
Yeah, this guy's really talented, too. James Lapine is an American stage director, playwright, screenwriter, and librettist. Uh-huh. Born in Mansfield, Ohio in 1949, he graduated from Franklin and Marshall College in Pennsylvania in 1971, and then went on to get his MFA from CalArts in 1973, studying photography and graphic design. He spent several years working as a photographer and architectural preservationist on the West Coast, before eventually accepting a position at the Yale School of Drama Teaching Design. It was actually through the encouragement of his students that he wrote and directed an adaptation of Gertrude Stein's play, Photograph. So yeah, he was not starting out as a playwright. He went on to write and direct many off-Broadway plays and musicals, and frequently collaborated with a few composers, again, that you might have heard of, William Finn and Stephen Sondheim. Uh Uh-huh! In 1982... Lapine was introduced to Stephen Sondheim, whom Act One is dedicated to. In their collaborations, he wrote the book for the musicals Sunday in the Park with George, Into the Woods, and Passion. Lapine has been nominated for 12 Tony Awards and has also received five Drama Desk Awards and a Pulitzer Prize, the last being for Sunday in the Park with George. Act One, which premiered on Broadway at the Lincoln Center Vivian Beaumont Theater in 2014, accounts for one of those Tony nominations for Best Play. His work deals with such diverse topics as dysfunctional families, the creative process, the value of art, and society's obsession with beauty. Some of his other plays include Luck, Pluck, and Virtue, Fran's Bed, and Mrs. Miller Does Her Thing. Wow, what a multi-talented man. I just think the similarities are fascinating that both these men are known for these collaborations they both became librettist and that was like pretty famous works Uh um like i said lapina said that this book was a very big influence on him he has really followed a similar trajectory you know what struck me is that moss hart took a lot of risks in his career He took a lot of chances when the opportunities arose. And I think that that is somewhat related to his economic conditions as a kid. Oh, absolutely. This idea of like, okay, this is what I want to do and I'm not going to let anything get in my way. It could turn into something really great, which can change things for me and my family in a dramatic way. Mm -hmm. Which in the play it does. And obviously in his life, it did. But I think that that's really interesting to think about the fact that when you don't have a lot, you can go a couple different ways. You can either continue to play the victim, or you can muster up what you've got and take a chance. Mm -hmm. There's something extra there, though. We know that he grows up in poverty, He quit school in eighth grade to go work in a fur factory, as you said. You could see that, well, that makes you motivated to not be poor ever again. There has to be some dogged determination. He chooses theater and chooses writing. Of course, we know this story about Aunt Kate and falling in love with theater at a young age. There's a great moment in the very beginning of the play where he's talking about What he learned very quickly from the theater was that he could be someone else. Not be a scrawny, unathletic, poor kid for two hours. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm horribly paraphrasing that. 
But that is the initial appeal. And I think the older Moss Hart... Oh, I should say that right off the bat. This play has an interesting device where three different people play Moss Hart at different ages. One is a little kid. One is Moss Hart from early teens to 24. And then there is Moss Hart at 55 years old, which would have been the age he was when he wrote the autobiography. The oldest version of him is the one who does narrate most of the play. Which is a great device. You've adapted a book, which is automatically going to have a certain degree of narration. So you wrote a character that actually is the author of the book narrating the play. And I'm not always a fan of narration, but I think it works here. I think it does just the right amount of explaining. It's done sparingly. Yeah, I mean, and when he comes in... It's very much needed for him to come in Mm -hmm. as the narrator. That's what makes it work. Yeah. There's an author's note that says the character Hart, who is the elder Moss Hart, he should be on stage as much as possible observing the proceedings. But I want to get back to what I was talking about, which is Hart says at the beginning of the play this whole thing of that's what he was attracted to, to not be himself for... A couple hours. That's what theater afforded him. And as such, he was more interested in acting at the beginning than he was in writing. Well, isn't that what attracts a lot of actors to acting? Or attracts writers to writing? You're getting to conduct the orchestra. (laughs) (laughs) You're getting to be sort of the god of that world, placing things where you want. You feel very in control. It's a very different feeling than real life where so many things are out of your control. But as far as like going and working in the theater for an actor or a writer, that's part of why I do it. Mm -hmm. There's an escapism to it. The irony is that you end up having to use yourself anyway. Right. That's the irony. That's all the information that you have to go on in order to create all these things. But there's still that feeling of portraying somebody else's life for a while. Isn't that why you're an actor? Or one of the reasons? That desire has changed over time. I won't go as far... Oh, you're above that now. Ha ha. I won't go as far as Moss Hart. He asserts this is the refuge of an unhappy child or unhappy childhood. So I won't agree with that. You didn't have any unhappiness as a child? Oh, I'm sure I did. (laughs) But I think it is the refuge of a misfit child or curious child. I loved being in theater early on just because it was fun. There wasn't much more to it. It was fun to get up on stage and tell stories. And, of course, enjoy laughter and applause from the audience, being a show-off. And then over time, I really fell in love with telling stories. similar thing happens to Moss Hart, where he talks about he couldn't relate to kids in the neighborhood, but where he found acceptance was he would go and see theater with his Aunt Kate, and then he would proceed to sit on the stoop, and all the neighborhood kids would gather around him, And he would tell the story. So I think that's an interesting variation. Some people join drama club, join theater, and they're like, this is where I fit in. This is where I feel accepted. And he found that too in a manner of speaking. I can't play stickball with the guys in the neighborhood, but I can be accepted as the storyteller. To me, that shows the necessity of the storyteller in the community. Mm. 
and how that is a relevant role. The fact that he is able to congregate all these kids around him and get them to listen because every human being needs stories to understand what it means to be a human being. And that is a big theme in this play, the value of art. And it's done in some subtle ways. Beautifully Uh, subtle. Certainly that one. The entirety of Act 2 is basically Kaufman and Hart working this play. And they put up a performance here, and it's like, ah, this is great, but this isn't great. Well, let's go back and rework it. Let's write a new Act 2. Let's write a new Act 3. Let's Let's... rearrange the scenes. Yeah, yeah. And I think this play is important for people to see. Well, to dispel that illusion that this is just a kid's game. The amount of time and work that goes into this is really astounding. And I think that sometimes you get a glimpse of it when actors talk about, oh yeah, we worked on this movie for seven years. People can't wrap their head around that, of like, what could possibly have taken seven years? Sometimes it takes that long. Sometimes you shoot a movie in ten days, and sometimes it takes seven years. People forget that most of this is a very collaborative effort. Sometimes you're a lone playwright, but nothing is done on its own. I should say nothing succeeds on its own. In the end, everything that we create requires an audience or input from other people. It requires the support of friends and loved ones, the encouragement to keep going, which relates to these wonderful friends in the play. Yes. Oh my gosh, yes. That Moss Hart has. In the first act of Act One, (laughs) (laughs) Irving and Eddie, these guys that he meets who are fellow office boys, they continue to stay with him and they're cheerleaders. As well as resources from time to time. Yeah, they have an actual interest in what he loves doing and what he wants for himself, which is the ultimate kind of friend. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, somebody who wants to see you happy in what you love doing. And as I pointed out, Eddie actually is the one who gets the ball rolling in terms of the networking connections Mm -hmm. that Moss Hart ends up having. Well, and And, Dor. I forgot about, is it Dor or Dory? I think it's Dor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was confused when I saw that name too. But regardless, this guy had a really great connection with Jed Harris. Yeah, producer Jed Harris. Another theater producer who was kind of an odd guy. Did he know him or did he just have a way of putting the script in his hands? Well, you get the impression that because these guys are the office boys to all these theater producers... Oh, that's true. ...that they do tend to... They were easily able to do it. They're in the know. In the case of Dor... I believe Doris says he knows some relative. Like, he goes to the same shul as oh. Jed Harris's niece or his daughter. I can't remember which. Okay. But that's how that happens. That doesn't work out. Eddie knows a talent manager oh, yes. for Sam Harris, who is the producer who does eventually put Hart in touch with Kaufman. I was just really struck by how supportive they were of Moss Hart, these friends of his, this confederation of office boys. You know, no one was spiteful because he was talented. No one was trying to compete 
in a way that was detrimental to him or anything. None of them were writers. I don't think so. I don't think, although they always had opinions about his writing. Yes. Yes. (laughs) But they were helpful opinions. Yeah. They want him to succeed. It's very much a thing of, we're all in the same boat, we're lowly office boys, and we want to help each other (laughs) succeed if we can, whatever that may be. I heard someone a while back say, in this business, it's not who you know. It's who you know that likes you. (laughs) And this is just such a reminder of how important networking is. I mean, it's important to so many industries. It is paramount in the acting industry and in the entertainment industry. This is a business of relationships. Yeah, so that's pretty cliche. How many times do we hear that? And it is the truth. And I love this little scene further into the play where we have a reminder of how likable Moss Hart is. Mm -hmm. We have a scene where it's opening night of Once in a Lifetime. And we get this, I almost want to call it a curtain call, where many of the actors stand up and recite these telegrams that have been sent to Moss for opening night. And And this is opening night on Broadway. Right. And each one of them, it's great writing because Lapine doesn't rely on, you're just going to remember all these people throughout the play. So they'll say their name and also say a little something that triggers the audience's memory of who they were in Moss Hart's life. But it's almost a summary of the play. Each one of these people, oh yeah, I remember when Moss Hart had that acting job. Oh, that's somebody from the Catskills. That's that first producer who hired him as an office boy. And they all get up and just wish him well. And it's a wonderful thing. Like I said, it's almost a a bit of a curtain call for all these characters. Not the actors, but the actual characters in the play to say... Hey, I had an interaction with Moss Hart, and I think he's a great guy, and I wish him well. Uh Uh-huh. But it's just so wonderful. We don't get that nowadays, to see all these telegrams sent. Well, uh, people get a version of it when they're in a show. People still get flowers in the theater, little notes, and uh, maybe you get a text now (laughs) from somebody saying, I can't make it to the show tonight. (laughs) Uh, No, but I still love you. Yeah. But it's wonderful to see this outpouring of love. And it does let you know that part of Moss Hart's success is because he is very well liked. I think you had the same reaction, if you don't mind me telling about your vulnerability a little bit. (laughs) Oh my god. But no, I looked in here as you were finishing the play and you were crying. Yeah, I teared up a little bit. And I couldn't help but start crying at that point in the play, too. That is an amazing achievement Mm -hmm. to sit and be reading a play. And Nathan and I realize that we're talking about plays and relating them to you. And the ultimate experience would be for you to see it performed. I mean, they're written to be performed. But there are some playwrights who are so good that even when you're just reading it, they can stir up so many emotions in you and... This, I'm starting to tear up right now thinking about it, this thing of people coming out with the telegrams, Mm -hmm. the reason that it made me cry is because it was done so truthfully and and it wasn't done in a sappy, overly sentimental way. It's the end of a long journey. 
it just feels like a lot of encouragement. And by that point, you're rooting for Moss Hart, too. You want this play oh, to succeed. Oh, yeah, Lapine does such a great job of building the suspense of Moss Hart and whether or not he's going to be able to be a successful writer. And it's very realistic mm-hmm. about an artist's life and how you have to go to this place and try to do your best there and you try to make it there and you try to walk away with a little bit of wisdom to go on to the next challenge of trying to get a part or trying to write something that people want to read or whatever. And it's so well done. If you have a chance to see this play, see it. And hopefully <laughs> it's done as well as it's written. When you walk into this... You know, initially not knowing anything about Moss Hart because Nikki and I read the play and then we do the history and the study of the playwright and so on. When you don't know, you are right there going, God, can this guy catch a break? That's the thing about the life of an artist. There's so much what many would call failures. I personally don't like to think of them as failures. I like to think of them as a win simply because I made an effort to do something. Although I have felt like a failure sometimes as an actor. What do they say? It's it's a Um, learning experience. (laughs) But I try to be positive about it and see it as just another effort. Maybe what we can call it is not getting what you want. Mm -hmm. Not getting what you originally set out to do. Mm -hmm. And not getting it many, many, (laughs) many, many times. And artists know this. We know... That what we have to do is uh, pick ourselves up, brush the dust off, (laughs) and find another place where somebody will want to hear what we have to say and will be interested in what we do and who we are. You cannot give up. Yeah. You just cannot give up. So that's another thing. It's taking risks to get where you want as a performer, a writer, an artist, and it's also not giving up and believing that you matter and what you say is going to need to be heard somewhere. Yeah. Somewhere. Uh, you know, somewhere. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't do that. We're going to get you can't do that. copyright yeah, trouble. The dedication that it takes to keep going, and especially for a writer. I mean, I'll say that we can apply so much of this to any artist. You have a voice and... As we say in our intro, other people might want to hear about it. Yeah, and that they would benefit from it, Mm -hmm. hopefully. This thing of not giving up is a major part of the play. Another thing that I want to address is this relationship with George S. Kaufman. Yes, go ahead. And George S. Kaufman was apparently quite a character. Very eccentric is putting it nicely, I would say. Yeah, but he really cared about the writing and he cared that it be great. And one thing that I noticed when he met Moss, you know, George S. Kaufman was already successful at that point and had his set way of doing things and his set rules. But he was willing to be flexible Mm -hmm. at times with Moss. And I think even more so the more he got to know him and the more comfortable he got Mm -hmm. working with him at least according to this play, what worked between the two men was that they just took each other for what they were. Mm -hmm. They took that and they found the commonalities. They found the bridges that allowed them to blend their styles. I really appreciated reading about that because 
I meet a lot of people nowadays, I'm going to be honest, who really don't even want to collaborate. Yeah, that's always hard. Like we said, it is a business of collaboration. But I do also see a lot of people who very much, even when they're in a show, even when they're in a cast, it's very much, this is about me. It's about me being seen. It's about me because moving forward. Because they're afraid forward. of failing. Yeah. I think that's a large oh, part of it. Right. They're afraid of failing. And they think, oh, well, if I just stick to my guns and stick to myself and not let you interfere with my process. I'm going to tell you, it almost never works. Every single production that I've ever seen, when I watch a play and it becomes apparent that that is the thinking, that this actor may be a talented actor. It's very much they're acting for themselves up there. They're not giving to their fellow actors. They're not giving to really the audience very much. And I always think this could be a much better production if that actor would just be even a little generous. Uh Uh-huh. Along with accepting each other for who they were, they also accepted the result for what it was. So, Mm -hmm. you know, just like theater has done this forever, they put it up in front of people in towns outside of New York City, but somewhat near New York City. Yeah, Sometimes stuff is done in Chicago beforehand, you know. They mention Atlantic City. Yeah. They mention Brighton Beach. Yeah, they do it in some areas outside of Central Broadway. Right. And get feedback. Mm-hmm. To make the play better for Broadway. Every time that they did that, Kaufman and Hart would, for one thing, they would commiserate about how nervous they were about the show opening <laughs> that night. Or, just, or, just pacing backstage. Um, Kaufman was in the show and would still be pacing backstage. Just so nerve-wracking to have your writing be put up in front of ordinary people's eyes and hear what they laugh at and what they don't laugh at or do they not laugh at all? What do they get and not get? But anyway... My point is that they were always very honest with each other about what needed to be worked on. Mm -hmm. Tweak this here, like you said, move this around there. And for the most part, they're listening to the audience response, not necessarily the critics. They're listening to friends they trust. They're listening to the audience and how they react. And it's like, well, it's clearly not working because the audience isn't laughing. I saw someone make a comparison online in an article And they were talking about, obviously it's nerve-wracking because there are people in the audience who are sort of the early critics going to see the show before it's fully done. Yes! Sneaky! And just talking about these people being vultures, that they're so ready to pounce on this new show and tear it to shreds. Moss Hart even says, he's talking to his buddies, the Office Boys, and he says, heck, if it wasn't my show... I'd be in the audience waiting to tear it to shreds. And so I think it's very interesting to have that and have the juxtaposition of today where it's immediate. I'm not just writing for the local paper. Critics come in and they'll see an early show and they'll tweet out their opinion to the entire world about your show. So if it took this incredible fortitude then... To just keep going amongst people absolutely tearing your work to shreds. I have so much respect for writers of writers of anything, but especially writers of new plays now, where someone will see something before it's done. Uh-huh. And the whole world will know somebody's opinion about it. To keep going is a very amazing feat of bravery. It is. And nowadays... I mean, of course, everyone has a right to their opinion. 
I do want to say that some people, though, I believe have a more qualified opinion than others about certain things. Yes. So sometimes writers are getting opinions from people who are not well read or don't know a lot about the theater, perhaps. Well, I think you can trust an audience's response. You can't necessarily trust their feedback on how to fix a problem, but the laugh is there or it isn't. Yeah, actors can make a difference, but it's a poor playwright who blames the actors for something not working, and Hart and Kaufman absolutely don't. Uh, In fact, they even talk about that in the play of, like, don't blame the actors, this isn't working, how can we fix it? Audiences come in and they have a whole variety of experiences and things that they bring to the table. Sometimes their particular experience doesn't fit with what they're seeing. You know, they're not able to have the perspective to understand what they're seeing. Yeah, that's a whole other that's issue. A whole, that's for, a whole other podcast. That's, that's a, called no. Audience Couch. <laughs> no, I want to say that's a whole other issue for artists is that part of finding success is finding your audience. Yes. Sometimes you have to trust that, no, I really do think this is good, but this audience absolutely isn't able to receive it. For whatever reason, that's not a bad thing. Everybody has different tastes, but you've got to find that audience in order to be successful. You may be happy as an artist no matter what, as long as you're creating, but if you want to make a living from it, I'll say it that way, then you've got to find your audience. Speaking of audience... <laughs> I want to personally thank those of you who have listened to the first season of Theater Couch. Thank you so much. And I want to say that these podcast episodes, of course, live on online. And so if you know someone who's into theater or someone who's curious about theater or someone that just really likes podcasts, please tell them about Theater Couch. And also... We want to hear from you. We have a Facebook page. Yes, please. A Theater Couch Podcast Facebook page. So share with us. Tell us what you think about the podcast. We'd love to hear what you liked, what you didn't like. We'd love to hear play recommendations. Yes, because we will be thinking about what our theme for next season will be. So once again, thanks everyone for listening. Season one has been an absolute pleasure to work on. I want to say thank you to James Lapine. Thank you to Moss Hart. Thank you to my partner in crime and love, Nikki Jacobs. Thank you, Nathan. It's been wonderful. It's been a pleasure. You can't see it. We're shaking hands. (laughs) Yes, it really has been an absolute pleasure to learn how to collaborate with you on Mm -hmm. this. I think we achieved it. I think we did all right. But we'll wait to hear from the masses. Until the next play. (laughs) See y'all later. Thank you for listening to Theater Couch Podcast. Today's play has been Act One by James Lapine. Published by Dramatist Play Service. This podcast is produced and hosted by Nathan Inzerillo and Nikki Jacobs. Connect with Nathan at NathanInzerillo.com and with Nikki at NikkiJacobs.com. We hope this podcast inspires you to make your own discoveries about Act One. This wraps up Season One, but we'll be back very soon for Season Two to talk more plays. Until then, we'll save you a seat on the theater couch. Thank you.